Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It was a sunny Sunday afternoon in Suffolk. Not long before lunchtime, 48-year-old gamekeeper Keith Pryor decided to take advantage of the warm August weather and headed out for a walk. He was accompanied by his friend Adrian, as well as Adrian's partner, Helen. The trio had been out for just a short while, enjoying a leisurely stroll through Thetford Forest Park, when suddenly Pryor stopped in his tracks, having picked up a deeply unpleasant odour. Turning to his companions, he could see that they too were wrinkling their noses. It wasn't the first time Keith had noticed a bad smell at this point in the trail. Their route, down a track known as Common Drove, which brought them near the perimeter fence of the RAF base at Lakenheath, was one Pryor walked regularly. Just three days earlier, in fact, he had noticed the very same odour. At the time, he had shrugged it off, It was probably just an animal carcass, or some particularly pungent manure, he had thought to himself. Today, however, he felt compelled to investigate. Following his nose, he fought his way through an overgrown, nettle-filled verge. The further he hacked his way through the dense foliage, the more intense the smell became. It filled his mouth and nose, and his eyes began to water. Keith had no idea what lay on the other side of the thicket, but he was certain of one thing. The stench in the air was one of death. Eventually, he found himself standing in a clearing, where on the ground to his left, about ten feet away, was the source of the smell. Pryor could scarcely believe the horrific sight before his eyes. Just a few metres away from where he'd entered the clearing, partially concealed by foliage, were the naked bodies of two small children. They were in an advanced state of decomposition and had been partially burned. Arriving just after Keith, Adrian's hands flew to his mouth upon witnessing the scene they had happened upon. He immediately shouted back into the verge where his partner was still struggling through the nettles. Don't come any closer, Helen. Get back in the van. Looking down at the bodies, Pryor felt he knew immediately who they were. For the better part of a fortnight, 
the entire region had been gripped by the disappearance of two young girls. The pair had vanished from the village of Soham, about ten miles east of the clearing where the bodies now lay. They had been missing for thirteen days. Their names were Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we are going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun. The Ford Fiesta. The smiling image of Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, dressed in matching Manchester United jerseys, had been printed on the front page of every newspaper and broadcast on every TV screen in the country. The photo had been taken just 90 minutes before they were last seen. The two ten-year-olds were classmates and friends, born and raised in Soham, a market town with a population of roughly 10,000 people. On the afternoon of August the 4th, a Sunday, Jessica had gone to Holly's house in Red House Gardens for a barbecue. The weather, while starting off sunny, soon turned and the barbecue had to be shifted from the garden to the garage. Having had their fill of burgers and chicken wings, the girls spent the rest of the afternoon inside, playing video games and listening to music. Holly was wearing her prized Manchester United jersey with the name of her hero, David Beckham, emblazoned on the back. Wanting to match her friend, Jessica borrowed Holly's brother's jersey. At about a quarter past six, the girls slipped out of the house without telling anyone and headed towards their local sports centre, where they purchased sweets from a vending machine. It was summertime, and they were allowed to be outside the front of the house by themselves until 8.30pm, when it started to get dark. A few minutes after the girls' curfew, Holly's parents, Kevin and Nicola, who had been entertaining company downstairs, realised that the girls weren't in the house. By 8.45, they started to worry. Holly was impeccably well-behaved. She was never late home. Jessica was no different. Unable to watch the clock any longer, Kevin and his son Oliver jumped onto their bikes and did several laps of the neighbourhood, calling out the girls' names as they pedalled. But there was no sign of them. Certain that something was very wrong, Kevin and Nicola phoned the police.
Both the Wells and Chapman families took to the streets of Soham that night, accompanied by dozens of volunteers. But the elements were working against them. Not long after the authorities arrived, a thick fog descended on the area. The visibility was so poor that a police helicopter was recalled not long after it had gone out, and the search party's torches were rendered near useless. They could barely see beyond their noses. They pressed on regardless, with many of them staying out all night. Soham is a small town, and word quickly got out about the girls' disappearance. But the following evening, their numbers had swelled and over 500 locals were now pitching in. Their search, which soon expanded to the fields and lanes on the outskirts of town, carried on until the early hours of the morning. In the meantime, the authorities interviewed neighbours and anyone who happened to be in the vicinity on the night in question. Bit by bit, they began to paint a picture of the girls' last known movements. Holly and Jessica had been picked up by CCTV, arriving at their local sports centre just before 6.30pm. Not long after that, a man named Mark Tuck told the authorities he had seen the pair walking down Sand Street just five minutes from Holly's home. He remembered tapping his wife on the arm as they drove past the girls and exclaiming excitedly, Look, there's two little Beckhams over there. Another witness, a woman living in the nearby village of Little Thetford, told police she'd seen the girls walking past her home on the morning of August the 5th, the day after they went missing. But the witness statement the police were most interested in was one given by a man named Ian Huntley. The 28-year-old caretaker from Grimsby lived in a house on College Close and knew the girls through his partner, Maxine Carr. She worked as a voluntary support assistant in St Andrew's Primary School, which Holly and Jessica attended. Huntley told the authorities that on the day the girls had gone missing, he had been out on the front steps of his home, about half a mile from the Wells' house, giving his dog a bath, when Holly and Jessica had walked past. He said they came up to him, happy as Larry. He stopped what he was doing and chatted with them for a minute or two. They asked about Maxine and whether she'd been successful in securing full-time employment at the school. Huntley said that Carr, who was inside the house at the time and didn't see or speak to the girls, had sadly not gotten the gig. Holly and Jessica told him to tell her that they were sorry and said goodbye before carrying on down the road in the direction of the local library. Huntley's statement, taken the day after the girls went missing, meant that to the best of the police's knowledge, he was the last known person to have spoken to them. By this point, the investigation had ramped up significantly. The authorities believed the girls had been kidnapped. Over 400 police officers from more than 25 different forces were deployed to Soham. They went door to door, hunting for further clues about their movements and combing over every inch of the town in the process. They even got support from US Air Force troops stationed at bases in the region 
who temporarily abandoned their regular duties to assist with the search. All told, the police interviewed close to 3,000 people over the course of the investigation. On top of this, every sex offender in the nearby area was taken in for questioning, and within a week of the girls going missing, over 250 of them from across the UK were spoken to. All were eventually eliminated as suspects. On Tuesday, August the 13th, police got the call they had been dreading. At around 4pm, they were contacted by a jogger who, during his afternoon run, had stumbled across what he believed to be two freshly dug graves. He also believed that he had heard the sound of girls' screams in the same area on the night of Holly and Jessica's disappearance. Police descended on the scene, cordoning off the area. By the time darkness fell that night, the site, about ten miles from Soham in the woods of Newmarket, was a sea of torchlight and radio chatter. Word quickly spread across Soham about the potential burial site. As the police searched and dug, the families waited by the phone with bated breath, anticipating the worst. Crime scene investigators worked through the night, and by the time they downed tools the following morning, the sun was peeking over the horizon. As it turned out, all the worry had been misplaced. The disturbed mounds of earth were nothing more than badger sets. Both sets of parents made a joint appeal on national television, begging for the girls' safe return and asking the public to get in touch if they had any information which might be useful. Over the next few days, over 2,000 calls came in. Whilst very few actionable tips resulted from the appeal, there was one thing that the police were pinning their hopes on. Jessica's mobile phone. Her parents had, of course, tried calling it dozens of times in the hours and days after she'd vanished, but to no avail. David Breck, the detective superintendent for Cambridgeshire Police, appeared on television, where he made a direct appeal to the kidnapper. He implored them to return the girls to their families, leaving a text message as well as a voicemail with further instructions on Jessica's phone. Looking straight down the lens of the camera, he told the kidnapper, you do have a way out. The authorities were hoping that, at the very least, the messages might pique the kidnapper's interest and that maybe, just maybe, they'd switch the phone back on, allowing them to triangulate its location. The police brought in a telecommunications expert named David Bristow to consult on the case. When mobile phones are powered off, they send a signal to the nearest cell tower. The majority of phones switched off in Soham ping a phone tower close to the local football club. Jessica's phone, however, connected to a tower in Burwell, a village six miles away. Records showed that the phone had been turned off at 1846, 
roughly 15 minutes after the girls had been picked up by CCTV. Police poured over the route Holly and Jessica were known to have taken on the day they went missing. The one known stop they made, the only one that would have resulted in the phone being picked up by the Burwell Tower, was right outside Ian Huntley's home. Ian Huntley had been the police's favourite suspect ever since he'd revealed that he'd spoken with the girls on the day they were last seen. When an officer called to his home to take his official witness statement, Huntley appeared to be extremely agitated throughout the visit. Whilst no evidence linking him to the girls was found at that time, it was noted that Huntley had several items of clothing on the washing line, despite the fact that it had been raining all day. It was also readily apparent that Huntley's home had been recently cleaned, and thoroughly the house smelling strongly of lemon bleach. His partner, Maxine Carr, was Huntley's alibi and told police that she and Huntley had been together at home on the night that Holly and Jessica had vanished. In the days and weeks after the girls' disappearance, Huntley regularly engaged with the media, appearing on television on multiple occasions where he expressed his hopes for Holly and Jessica's safe return. He was also frequently seen pestering the police for updates about how their investigation was proceeding, posing questions that raised eyebrows like how long DNA evidence left at a crime scene might take to break down. Carr followed her partner's lead, telling the press, if only we knew then what we know now. Then we could have stopped them, or done something about it. In a subsequent interview, she showed reporters a handmade card Holly had given her on the last day of term, thanking her for being such a good teaching assistant. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
On August the 5th, the day after the girls had gone missing, Huntley, in his capacity as the caretaker at Soham Village College, had let the police into the building as part of their village-wide search. However, when they came upon a hangar on the premises, he told them he didn't have the right key on him, and they moved on. Police eventually entered the hangar on August the 16th. On the same day that Huntley and his partner Maxine Carr were taken in for further questioning. There they discovered the burned remains of two Manchester United jerseys in a bin. Just a few miles away, whilst being interviewed in separate police stations, Huntley and Carr stuck to their story, that they'd been home in their house at Five College Close on the night in question. Two weeks into the girl's disappearance, Huntley continued to give interviews to the press, having become something of a self-appointed spokesperson for Soham and the collective loss the village was experiencing. But these interviews were different. On camera, Huntley appeared gaunt and sleep-deprived. During one interaction with a police officer, he snapped and shouted, You think I've done it? I was the last person to see them. Cracks were starting to appear. Then Huntley's criminal past emerged. In 1996, he'd been charged with burglary after he and an accomplice broke into a neighbour's home, helping themselves to electronics, cash and jewellery. On top of his light-fingered tendencies, Huntley was also a known paedophile. He'd been reported to the police on several occasions for entering into sexual relationships with minors, one of whom was just 13. He also impregnated a 15-year-old who gave birth to his child in 1998. Huntley was ultimately never charged with any offence because when the police followed up with the victims at the time, each one of them had denied sleeping with him. His criminal record hadn't shown up when he'd applied for the caretaker job at Soham Village College because he'd used his mother's maiden name, Nixon, on his application. He and his partner, Maxine Carr, were arrested in the early hours of the morning on August the 17th, suspected of abduction and murder. Less than 12 hours after Huntley's arrest, the girls' bodies were discovered in the clearing at Common Drove. The operating theory was that the killings were not premeditated, that after they happened upon his doorstep, Huntley had lured the girls into his home where he had strangled them, hence the clean-up job. The coroner's report stated that due to the level of decomposition, no precise cause of death could be determined, but that the most likely scenario was that the girls had died of asphyxiation. Then, Huntley had placed their bodies in the boot of his car and driven them to the dumping site, where he burned them, before disposing of their clothing in the hangar. Huntley's fingerprints had been found on the bin bag in which the burned jerseys had been disposed of. An examination of the hangar also showed dark discoloration on the cobwebs covering light fixtures near the bin, 
which strongly suggested that the jerseys had been burned inside the hangar by someone with a key to the building. Those same cobwebs were later found to be coated in smoke residue. Additionally, hair belonging to Huntley was found in the same bin as the burned clothing. Marion Clift, a neighbour of Maxine Carr's mother, who lived in Grimsby where the pair were visiting, would later tell police that two days after the murders, she witnessed the couple standing to the rear of Huntley's car, a red Ford Fiesta. The boot was open at the time. She recalled seeing a pale, shaking Huntley stare blankly into the boot for a while. Next to him, Carr was crying. When Huntley realised that they were both being watched, he quickly slammed the boot shut. By this point, Huntley's home had been gone over with a fine tooth comb. After an exhaustive investigation by forensic specialists in which over 8,000 items were tested and catalogued, 49 fibres from the girls' football jerseys were found at the property. Additionally, keys to the hangar where the jerseys were discovered were found in Huntley's bedroom. But whilst the evidence against Huntley was piling up, they still needed to connect him with the dumping site. In order to do that, the authorities needed to prove that Huntley's car had been used to transport the girls' bodies from his home on College Close to the clearing at Common Drove. On the afternoon of August the 5th, the day after Holly and Jessica vanished, Ian Huntley's red Ford Fiesta pulled up outside a tyre depot in Ely, a city just a few miles north of Soham. He was greeted by Christopher Piggott, a tyre fitter. Huntley wanted four brand new tyres. For Piggott, it was a surprising request. Huntley's tyres were in good nick. They certainly didn't need to be replaced. In fact, less than a month earlier, Huntley had taken his car in for an MOT, during which his tyres were checked and reported as perfectly good. They had a tread depth of 5 millimetres and, under normal circumstances, would be expected to be legal for at least another 10,000 miles. A set of brand new tyres was by no means cheap. Nevertheless, Huntley was insistent on dumping the four he had and replacing them with a pristine set at a cost of £100. And Piggott was disinclined to turn down business. The tyre fitter completed the job in just under an hour. But when it came to payment, something odd happened. Huntley asked Piggott not to include his car's registration on the invoice, offering him £10 to use a fake one instead. After consulting with his boss, Piggott accepted the bribe. The invoice for four new Salva Effector tyres now said they were mounted to a vehicle with the registration number L778. TXR. All this fuss made total sense for someone who didn't want their vehicle to be connected with the tracks near a specific site. Police later searched Huntley's home for an invoice for the clearly new tyres on his vehicle, but would never find one. 
It would also eventually emerge that a phone call to Huntley's mobile at around 3.16pm put the signal in Ely, just 20 minutes before the invoice for the tyres was issued. Dr Andrew Moncrief, a forensic geologist, was recruited with the hope that he could place Huntley's car at Common Drove. That road, the one which Huntley would have had to use to access the clearing, had one very distinctive characteristic, one which differentiated it from the other roads in the area. At the time of the girl's disappearance, Common Drove was flanked on both sides by raised piles of chalk and builder's rubble. Crime scene investigators examined the Ford Fiesta. Huntley had carefully cleaned the car, that much was clear. But the experienced forensics team knew exactly where to look. All the hard-to-reach areas that had seen countless criminals come a cropper over the years. Eventually, they recovered soil samples from the vehicle's suspension and footwells and carried out a palynological profile. By taking samples from a continuous sequence of soil depths and then extracting, identifying and counting the pollen in each level, palynologists create a pollen profile of an area over a specific time. The pollen profile can be plotted as a graph. Additionally, they were able to match pollen found on Huntley's shoes and in his car with pollen taken from the ditch where the bodies were found. When the soil samples were examined, those found in Huntley's car were a clear match for the soil on Common Drove. The only way it could have reasonably gotten there was if it had been driven over a pile of the stuff in order for the driver to get very close to the side of the road, or in this case, close to the clearing. Finally, a pair of scissors recovered from the boot of the car was found to be covered in fibres from the girls' jerseys. On August the 20th, just over two weeks after Holly and Jessica had first gone missing, Ian Huntley was charged with their murders. Whilst Carr was accused of attempting to pervert the course of justice, as well as assisting an offender. The man who, just a few weeks earlier, had been going out of his way to speak to the police every chance he got, was now decidedly standoffish. He gave monosyllabic answers to any questions asked of him and played up symptoms of mental illness in an effort to deflect their queries. A judge ruled that the pair could not be tried in East Anglia due to the difficulty of finding jurors unaffected by the case. They determined that Huntley and Carr would stand trial at the Old Bailey, the central criminal court of England and Wales, typically reserved for the highest profile cases. Over 2,000 people attended a memorial service for Holly and Jessica in Ely Cathedral on August the 30th. It seemed like the entire country was in mourning. An online book of condolences had received over 30,000 signatures and a week before the memorial, football clubs across the country, including top-flight Premier League teams, observed a minute's silence in tribute to the girl's memory before kick-off. Holly and Jessica were buried one day apart in Soham's Fordham Road Cemetery in September. 
During the six-week-long trial, a myriad of forensic evidence was put forward by the prosecution. DNA samples, fibre evidence and palynological profiles all played a part in the prosecution's case. Ultimately, however, Huntley was undone by his vehicle. The red Ford Fiesta provided the prosecution with a wealth of evidence pointing towards his guilt. Everything from the DNA and jersey fibres discovered in the vehicle's boot to the specific soil found in the footwells, as well as Huntley's numerous and obvious attempts to sanitise the crime scene, created an undeniable link between the murder victims, the dumping site, the car, and, most importantly, its owner. Maxine Carr, whose alibi for Huntley had soon collapsed when it emerged she was actually in Grimsby on the night she had claimed to be at home with him, eventually turned on her partner. During her appearance on the stand, she pointed directly at him, and she refused to be blamed for what that thing had done. Huntley was found guilty, charged with two counts of murder, and was sentenced to life in prison. Carr received a 42-month prison sentence. After her release, she was moved to a safe house and given a new identity, becoming one of just a handful of former prisoners in the UK to be granted lifelong anonymity. Huntley is serving his time in Franklin Prison in Durham, where he won't be eligible for parole until 2042, by which point he will be 68 years old. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, and by me, Tracy Alexander. Executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help to spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. 
If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime. Subscribe and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love and it costs just 3 pounds per month.